Aliens with enormous thrilling devices have appeared in Paris, Tokyo, and New York, although Doomstat naturally remains unaffected. Also in New York, the infamous vampire Vlad Dracula was spotted in a discotheque, and is reported to have hurled the bounty hunter who identified him off a roof to his death. The mutant criminal Magneto has destroyed a research facility in Australia, we'll have a report on that from John Cheever of the BBC later on. King T'Challa of Wakanda has been observed to have developed extrasensory perception, following a confrontation with the radioactive creature Jakara. And our US correspondent reports that the Japanese monster Godzilla has destroyed Mega Monsters Crawler, Ryan, and Triax, in a confrontation in Salt Lake City. This is Gustav Croft for the VOL. Zero, zero, five. This is the voice of Latveria. Zero, zero, five. Here in Latveria, we get news from all over the world. The news may be good or bad, but we will always tell you the truth as Lord Doom sees it. And now, our weekly feature on the history of our world's greatest hero, Victor Von Doom, with your host Douglas Wolf, by special arrangement with Universe 1218. Thank you so much, Doombot R 236 We're going to do something a little bit different on this week's episode. We've been looking uh, for the last few weeks at some early Fantastic Four stories in which Doctor Doom appears from the 1960s. This week, we're actually going to look at two comics from the 1970s and one comic from the late 1990s. And I'm also going to take a little while before I introduce our special guest for this week, who's going to tell us some really fascinating stuff pertinent to this story. We're looking at Invaders number 32 and 33 from the mid-70s, written by Roy Thomas, drawn by Frank Springer. And there's a scene uh, in the first of those where we see Adolf Hitler in Berlin in late 1942 attending a performance of Wagner's opera, Götterdämmerung. And he talks to one of his subordinates about how, quote, the world of which Wagner wrote the world of Teutonic gods and beauteous Valkyries is as real as our own, and then takes him to see the proof on that. He goes to visit a scientist, Dr. Olson, who has a mysterious uh, bandage-faced assistant. And Dr. Olson, it turns out, has been instructed by Hitler to study the works of Wagner very, very closely, especially the ring cycle, so that he can open a dimensional portal to the true Asgard and bring Donner... Thor, as we know him, through so that Hitler can send Thor to go assassinate Joseph Stalin and thus head off the Battle of Stalingrad. This is only the beginning of the strangeness of this particular story. In uh, the second part, Invaders number 33 from October 1978, we see Thor, having been talked into it by Hitler, going off to assassinate Stalin. That doesn't happen, clearly. But we do see another scene with the scientist who brought him through and his mysterious bandaged assistant. Dr. Olson, the scientist, uh, has an attack of guilt or maybe a heart attack or something and dies. Hitler starts speechifying and suddenly the assistant lets it be known that he is actually Dr. Doom. Yes, we knew he was going to come in at some point. He's actually Dr. Doom. Uh, The attack of Thor is kind of headed off at the pass and Dr. Doom, in his bandages, blows up the machine so as not to 
get a group of Asgardian trolls to go conquer Earth for the Nazis. There's more to the plot, too, but that's the relevant part. Now, Doctor Doom being active in late 1942 was just sort of on the verge of believability in the late 70s when that comic was published. By a couple decades later, it was clear that that really could not be the case because, of course, he went to college with Reed Richards, right? So what's he doing in 1942? Marvel Universe number two by Roger Stern, Steve Epting, and Al Williamson from 1998 explains... It turns out that Doom was time-traveling to 1942, having heard about Nazi technology having invented this kind of dimensional portal in the hopes that it was something that he could learn something about so as to rescue his mother from hell, presumably. As it turns out, Baron Strucker was also kind of on the scene at the time and saw Doom's time platform and traveled through time using the time platform, to some point very near the beginning of Doom's career. Now, it's not clear exactly when, but there is one contextual cue in this issue, which is that Baron Strucker finds himself at a newsstand, which is selling copies of Now magazine, has Ben Grimm on the cover, well, you know, it could have at any point, but it also has a comic book spinner rack, which includes issues of Tales with Suspense, Strange Tales, Amazing Fantasy, and life with Millie. He then travels back in time to where he came from using Doom's time platform somehow with his knowledge of the future. But let's go back and look at that spinner rack again. There's a copy of Amazing Fantasy on it, so it has to be sometime after the fall of 1962 in real-time Marvel time, right? There's also an issue of Life with Millie, and Life with Millie was no longer published after mid-1963. So... I'm going to pinpoint this story as being just about right now in our reading order. Shortly after Fantastic Four 16 and 17, Doom is back in his native dimension. He is no longer in the microverse. But of course, the big question that this set of comics brings up is Wagner's operas and Donner being Thor and Hitler's connection to Wagner's operas and what even? Fortunately... We have the authority on this right here as this week's special guest. Alex Ross is the brilliant music critic for the New York Times, the author of The Rest is Noise, Listening to the 20th Century. This is the Alex Ross who also recently wrote an absolutely extraordinary book called Wagnerism about the afterlife of Richard Wagner's music. So who better to ask? Welcome, Alex Ross. Thank you so much for coming. Basically, what I would love you to talk about is just the way that Wagner gets used in this story. Well, sure. Um, I mean, of course, there's you know poetic license uh, allowed uh, when you're sort of treating the the period, and you wouldn't expect there to be you know verisimilitude in, ter- in terms of what was actually going on in terms of the the, the operatic performance scene in, in Germany uh, in 1942. Uh, I mean, strictly speaking, uh, to be just you know super. Fanatic. Um, Hitler would not have been at such a performance. Uh, Hitler stopped going to public events and performances uh, after 1940, uh, essentially. He felt that as long as the war was going on, he shouldn't be engaging in, in sort of 
frivolous uh, entertainment and, and sort of made a made a show of subjecting himself to this, you know, duty of being the commander in chief and being at the front or behind the front and all this kind of stuff. So um, the the last time he was docu- documented as uh, going to the opera, I believe was. It was Wagner. It was, in fact, Goethe Demerung, uh, but it was in 1940 at Bayreuth. Um, and so, no, he would not have been uh, at a performance uh, in 1942. There, there may have been such performances going on. I'm not couldn't quite figure out what the sort of schedules were in the Berlin Opera Houses um, in that period because there are bombings taking place and, and opera houses were being destroyed all across Germany, the sort of number of our perform- performances was was diminishing, uh, but they were still uh, going on. When you get into this question of what Wagner meant in in Nazi Germany, I've written a lot about this in in, in my book uh, Wagnerism, and sort of trying to separate out the people's general assumptions about the significance of Wagner in Nazi Germany from the reality. And this isn't to say that that you know Wagner was a, was an important propaganda tool. Um, all through the Nazi regime, and Hitler did love Wagner's music from a very early age, but it's it's often exaggerated, and you know these scenes in the comic are, are you know kind of uh, evidence of that. Uh, the degree to which Wagner was was really serving uh, a, a Nazi propaganda agenda, and there was actually some tension between Hitler's love for Wagner, his urge to kind of, he just wanted everyone around him to be listening to Wagner. He wanted the whole kind of German populace to to be, sort of have access to Wagner. He wanted ticket prices to be lower. He wanted opera houses to be able to pack in more people because he just felt this this music should speak to everyone as it, as it spoke to me, which is this completely kind of narcissistic enterprise where he just sort of wanted everyone else to have the identical uh, experience. But that kind of collided with you know the, the the reality of popular culture in Nazi Germany and how this this music these operas were never all that popular and you know especially after the 1920s in Germany which had seen this influx of American style cultural forms uh, jazz popular music and also the movies which were of course very much partly a German invention you know that had really taken hold of the populace and. Statistically, when you look at the numbers of performances of Wagner operas, they're in decline Like throughout the 1930s into the 1940s. He was actually slipping in popularity somewhat, despite uh, Hitler's uh, heavy promotion. And, and Goebbels uh, knew very well how powerful these, these mass-produced or kind of you know, mass-reproduced cultural forms were in, in sort of either cementing the populace around the Nazi agenda or in distracting the populace from the Nazi agenda. Uh, either way, they, they, they were so much more powerful than, you know, symphony performances or, or operatic performances. So, so Goebbels had like declining uh, interest in them as time went on, even though he personally professed to, to love Wagner. I think it was mostly to sort of to sort of have something to talk to Hitler about, um, and and so yeah, it's it's ironic, you know, that despite the fact that Wagner was anti-Semitic, despite the fact that he was so heavily identified with with German nationalism, he wasn't nearly as useful uh, to the Nazis as, as you might assume. And you know, there are a lot of aspects to the operas that were just really almost antithetical to Nazi ideology because. You know, the entire ring cycle is this very political piece. And it was very much from a left-wing revolutionary perspective that it was first conceived back in 18. 18- 
48. And it's a critique of power. It's a, it's a critique of the aristocracy um, and, and the sort of powers that be. It's a sort of you know allegory for, for revolution and this overturning of society. And you can sort of read it, and people did read it in terms of you know, fascist ideology and, and Nazi ideology. It's a very open-ended kind of piece and you can sort of find it in whatever you whatever you want. But, you know, in the end, you know, this is this is a story of the the, the downfall of of power and how how love and power can never coexist. Um, and and to sort of attain power you must give up love. And and the ring is the symbol of this this greed for power. And so, you know, built into the piece, and I think also evident in Wagner's biography, he just he just wasn't really interested in the idea of a very powerful state. And it actually distressed him. And and he became disenchanted with the German Empire. Uh, and he didn't like its militarism. And so yeah, there, there are many aspects to Wagner which which didn't fit in with the Nazi um, agenda. So obviously <laughs> these scenes in the comic <laughs> overlook that, you know, but, you know, at the same time, I find it really interesting. I mean, there is this kind of mythology, the sort of myth of Wagner as the kind of proto-Nazi, um, you know, as the sort of supreme anti-Semite, as, as this, um, you know, huge influence on Hitler. And it's, and it's not fictitious, you know, I mean, there are elements of truth in it, you know, and Hitler really did have that kind of almost fanatical um, uh, relationship with the idea of Wagner. Um, and so, you know, even if Wagner himself can be separated somewhat, it happened and it happened in a way that feels kind of inevitable that just this, that, you know, there was a sort of a misunderstanding that was bound to occur. And, uh, and, and so Wagner bears responsibility for the way in which his work was misused and, and, and uh, appropriated just because of his bigotry and anti-Semitism and, and extreme nationalism. So it's, yeah, it's obviously it's just a really complicated <laughs> situation and it's one that, that is so hard to untangle, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, so there's an element of wild exaggeration kind of in this, in these uh, images and improbability, but there also is that kind of undertow of psychological truth that, that there was, when the Nazis appropriated Wagner, they were able to make a very persuasive case why he belonged to them especially and why all these other understandings of Wagner should be set aside. Now, there's a, a line of dialogue in here where, where Hitler is saying, you have often heard me say that I felt Wagner wrote his divine music as echoes from another world, which he heard and lesser men did not. And there's footnotes, see Hitler's table talks. Like, that is kind of, yeah, that does echo a, a, a passage where he's he's talking about, yeah, Wagner is uh, very much in those terms as sort of emanations uh, from from another world. It's all rather vague. Actually, in those passages, he's he's not giving it a political significance so much as just he feels that there's something transcendent and transporting uh, about Wagner and, and especially kind of the Rheingold, sort of these primordial energies. And and so, yeah, that is that is true enough. But he doesn't quite translate it into, you know, the sort of further step that they they, they take it in, in the comics here, where it's kind of, you know, Hitler is, this is the source of this Germanic kind of energy, which is, you know, the, also the source of all of Hitler's politics, you know, and, and so, the, so the big question in terms of Hitler's relationship with Hitler, like how political was it? Yeah, because he was a very young man, he was just a, a teenager, when he fell in love with Wagner's music. 
And this was a time in which he was very apolitical. You know, he was just, he was this kid who just kind of loved to go to the opera and read books and paint. And he was just very aesthetically oriented. Um, and there's very little sign of, of his later political radicalism. And that only really happened during World War One. He was a soldier. He started being attracted to these sort of really extreme far right ideas. And so for years before that, he had this relationship with, with Wagner that was just kind of about loving the music and loving the stories. And so my question, and I think a lot of people who confronted this, is did he did he revert to that, you know, when he, when he was listening to Wagner, even kind of later in his life? Or did kind of that early love of Wagner get fused with his politics and his ideologies so that it really did acquire this more lethal um, kind of presence for him? It's just hard to decide because he never he never really went on at length, you know, in public about Wagner and, and, and what, what Wagner meant. You know, everyone knew that he, that he loved the, the operas and he went to Bayreuth every summer from 1933 on and had this close relationship with Wagner family, but he didn't, he never really kind of pontificated about it, you know, what it all meant. He was just always Wagner was the great German composer and, and everyone should be, you know, appreciating Wagner, but, but he didn't, he didn't sort of weaponize Wagner in that way. Other other propagandists did, and Goebbels would quote from Wagner's anti-Semitic writings sometimes, but but Hitler never did. He never actually made mention in any source that we can find of of Wagner's anti-Semitism, which is which is kind of strange, but that's that's the way it is. <laughs> and there, there's also this very odd scene here where we see you know, a scientist who's been assigned to study Wagner's operas and figure out from them how to open a dimensional portal. What sort of crypto-mystical ideas have been applied to Wagner after the fact? Yeah, the well, there was there was a lot of that going on, you know, um, and not just in Germany. Um, you know, starting already in the 1880s and 1890s, you know, there was this big wave of occultists and sort of alternative spiritual movements and, and kind of Rosicrucian societies and revivals of the Knights Templar and then the sort of the rise of theosophy and anthroposophy. And, and, and so there's this, this swarm of, of movements who, are, who sort of took up a lot of ideas about, sometimes it was sort of pagan, sometimes it was about sort of fusing Western and Eastern spiritual traditions, but there was just a lot of, you know, a lot of seances, a lot of kind of Ouija board activity and kind of conjurations and and sort of people presenting themselves as, um, you know, the arch magus of this and that. And so in my book, I talk about this extraordinary figure in France, Josephine Peladon, who wrote these absolutely wild novels with, you know, uh, sorcerers and and kind of secret societies and and succubi and 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 Wagner was part of that, you know. So I mean, you know, he saw Wagner as part of this occult, you know, field, and this the Wagner was for him a kind of portal to the beyond. And a lot of other people had that that experience. And, and uh, you know, Alistair Crowley wrote about um, Wagner um, in these terms uh, and wrote sort of several crazy poems uh, about uh, Wagner. And sort of people in Russia were sort of enacting these these. Sort of ceremonies with chalices of blood and, and with sort of Wagnerian themes. Um, so yeah, there was there was a lot of just craziness around around Wagner. And it's interesting how 
you know, especially had to do with Wagner's final opera, Parsifal. That was like the, the, the one that was most attractive because it is this very enigmatic piece. It is combining Christianity and Buddhism and sort of pagan themes, you know, and, and just very much in that manner that was that was fashionable at the turn of the century. Um, and it was only being performed in Bayreuth. And so people would make this pilgrimage uh, to see it. And so Bayreuth acquired this status as sort of this holy grail, like, you know, uh, atmosphere. And, and, and so, yeah, that's, you know, without Wagner really intending it, Wagner himself wasn't interested in, he was certainly interested in the idea of, of exploring the other spiritual traditions, but he was not interested in the occult and, and, and sort of had a, just basically kind of a, a limited interest in in all of this uh, activity that that others later found in him, but somehow the operas themselves, just with this ability that they had to sort of put people in this dream world and, and sort of put them under a spell, just so many people had this experience over and over again of feeling transported to one place or another. The combination of you know the music and the orchestration and the the hugeness of the operas and the scale of it and and uh and you know the themes these sort of mythical themes uh, so people just had these had these sort of quasi spiritual experiences with with Wagner so so yeah this was this was going on in in Germany too and it was sort of mixing with these neo pagan movements uh so you you had the uh you had sort of various societies springing up even before the uh, the First World War, sort of trying to revive uh, Teutonic rituals and, and sort of Wagner music would be uh, incorporated into uh, uh, some of these uh, rituals. And then um, people like Guido von Liszt in, in Vienna, who was supposed to have been an early influence on, on Hitler, was kind of mixing the occult, Wagner, and anti-Semitism and, and hyper-nationalism. You know, so, so yeah, there's, there's, a, there's, there's definitely some you know, basis for that you know, at least that kind of language, that kind of rhetoric here. Um, Hitler, though, was not interested in any of it. Hitler was, you know, there was just a wing of the Nazi party that was into the occult. And, you know, Himmler was especially interested in sort of building this sort of pseudo grail castle for the SS and conducting these, these researches into, you know, ancient pagan uh, energies and sort of you know, and so that was that was like a, one kind of you know wing of the Nazis, but but Hitler himself was kind of dismissive of it. You know, I mean Hitler was kind of this you know there was was this aspect of of Hitler that he was just this petty bourgeois. You know, very there was part of him that was just very traditional in terms of his tastes. You know, if you just look at the decor of. Berchtesgaden, his mountain hideaway. I mean, it's just this very sort of kitschy, you know, Austrian kind of taste uh, that that he had, and and so yeah, that was that was not his interest. But you know, if you kind of just you know allied that kind of particular <laughs> matter, you know, it's it, it is the it is the kind of talk that you know some people in the in the in the Nazi circle were engaging in. It was that was just a kind of group that was actually sidelined. You know, as as Hitler consolidated his hold on power, he 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 pushed a lot of these. You know, I mean, some of them were also sort of overlapping with this kind of hippie lifestyle and kind of running around naked in the woods and the the, the male youth movement. You know, um, and and that was you know part of the kind of important sort of influx of those people in the Nazi Party early on and and the stormtroopers and Ernst Ernst Röhm. But but uh, Hitler had 
had just less patience for, for that kind of activity and, and just wanted something much more doctrinaire, much more, also much more presentable, you know, um, and, and, and sort of mainstream, you know, in terms of behavior and, and ideology. But it lingered, I mean, it lingered to the, to the end. A weird kind of counterfactual question. So the, the centerpiece of this strange, strange story is reaching into the ring cycle effectively and mm -hmm. pulling out a character to send him to go assassinate Stalin. And the character is Donner. Right. Is Donner really the best choice from the ring cycle to go assassinate Stalin? <laughs> um, not really. You know, I mean, it's funny. Uh, Donner only appears in Rheingold. Um, and he has this, you know, spectacular moment uh, where he swings his hammer, uh, and there's the spark that that clears the air, uh, and then the the rainbow bridge uh, appears across which the gods are able to, you know, enter into the newly built palace of of Valhalla. So he has a great moment, but you know, I mean, the way Wagner presents all the gods, really except for Wotan, in in the Rheingold, and Rheingold is the only opera where you see this, you know, whole kind of society of, of gods together, they're somewhat ridiculous, you know, and he, and he presents them purposefully as, as somewhat ridiculous. You know, it's the sort of clan of, of, it's a royal family, you know, of people with kind of varying abilities and varying, varying capacities. And, and so he is, he's satirizing kind of an aristocracy um, and the sort of presumptions of the aristocracy. And it's, it's an aristocracy in decline. Uh, so the, you know, the whole, plot of the ring stems from the fact that Wotan wants to build this great new palace, Valhalla, but he can't actually afford it. Um, and he's, he's you know, uh, the giants have built the thing and are expecting to be paid. Uh, and Wotan actually doesn't have the funds uh, to, to pay them, which is why, you know, he seizes hold of the ring and the gold. He, you know, he hears about Alberic having, you know, taken the gold from, from the Rhine and, and descends and tricks uh, Alberic into giving it up. I mean, he steals it from Alberic. Um, and then he uses that, that uh, hoard to pay off the giants. But then having tasted the power of the ring, he wants it back. And, and so he's continuing to scheme, you know, to, to get it back. And, and so it's this, this you know, uh, it's, a, it's a very critical you know, sort of sociologically sort of critical look, you know, at, at what happens to, you know, the, the, the powers that be when they begin to lose their strength in the face of, it's about new technologies. It's about sort of this rising industrial um, class. Uh, and Alberic is, is a kind of, you know, new self-made capitalist uh, who's used this technology to acquire enormous power. And, you know, Votan wants to take hold of it. So that's, that's kind of the allegorical root of it. But it's sort of a long way of saying that, that no, Donner is, is not particularly important <laughs> Or, or effective, um, and uh, you know, I mean, the 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 character with the most power is is Photon, and so if there's any one person you'd want to maybe extract from from the ring, it it, it might be Votan. But then Votan's power just entirely depends on his contracts and treaties and and relationships. You know, uh, he doesn't really have any spectacular innate kind of power of, of his own. Um, and he's destined, you know, to sort of go down in flames, you know. So uh, uh, it's very interesting how, I mean, maybe, maybe Alberic would be the one you'd want to 
um, get hold of because he does have this tremendous technological capacity to to create new weapons and and new new devices. But Alberic is not one of the the high pure Nordic gods. You know, he's he's uh, from from the from the underworld, from the realm of the dwarves. Um, and in fact, there's been much speculation over the years of whether over the years whether Alberic is is a stereotype, a kind of cryptic stereotype of a Jewish character. There's some good reason to think so. He does sort of fit some of the characteristics that Wagner in this anti-Semitic essay assigns to the Jews. But at the same time, he's not a villain. Uh, there's actually a very appealing, I personally find him a very appealing character. <laughs> he's and he's wronged. He's wronged by the by by the gods. He's wronged by by Votan. So he's not pure evil at all. But you know the fact that there is sort of this crypto-Jewish element to Alberich that would make it unlikely that you know Hitler would want to extract him from the ring and and send him into battle. I, I don't know. <laughs> but um, again, there were such speculations, and there and there were you know in the Nazi period, you know, as in every other period, everyone wanted to kind of read their own ideology and their own agenda into into the ring because it's just something that just feels as though it can be applied over and over again, you know, to whatever situation uh, we're in i mean you know the the idea of a of a of a powerful man who refuses to you know pay his contractors you know makes you think that <laughs> <laughs> obviously you could do a production of the ring with like a donald trump like characters as photon you know <laughs> wow and one final very silly question i think i sent you a, a few panels showing uh dr doom playing his grand piano while wearing armored gloves, mentioning his love for Wagner as well. Has anyone actually ever tried to play Wagner's piano music while wearing armor, to your knowledge? <laughs> Not that I know of. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, there's a long tradition of playing Wagner at the piano, and Liszt made these spectacular arrangements of his son-in-law, Wagner's uh, work. And it kind of makes me think of Ken Russell's Listomania, maybe, because there's just a lot of crazy people flailing away at the piano or at the organ, you know, in that movie and Wagner being mixed with kind of Nazi imagery and, and supernatural forces. And so maybe someone's wearing gloves of some kind in one of those scenes, I don't quite remember. <laughs> um, and also sort of list at the end is flying in this kind of organ spaceship down playing the uh you know playing the keyboard but no i i yeah uh, nothing nothing comes to mind um. <laughs> alex ross thank you so much again for joining us alex's recent book again is wagnerism art and politics in the shadow of music it is very very good i endorse it a couple things uh before we go faithful retainer boris has let us know that we have a question from listener kyan ross who writes we all know Victor Von Doom was kicked out of State University for his extracurricular activities of conducting forbidden experiments. So where did he finish his doctorate? Now, I don't know that we know that Doom was an undergrad his entire time at State University, especially given that he was doing pretty advanced work while he was there. He might well have been doing postdoctoral work at the time he was expelled, and Reed Richards has multiple doctorates as well, so that's, that's possible. Uh, we know from Fantastic Four Annual Number 2 that he started calling himself Dr. Doom rather than simply Victor Von Doom the day that he got his metal mask. But we don't know exactly what the timetable was before that. 
And in Infamous Iron Man number eight from 2017, Doom tells Weary Williams, you'll have to sift through the rubble, but I think my doctorates are around here somewhere. So he has multiple doctorates. We assume they're not simply honorary. And in any case, we can assume that had he had to go through the snake fighting portion of his thesis defense, he would have aced it. Next week, I'll be talking about Amazing Spider-Man number five with special guest Matt Singer. The Voice of a Latveria podcast is made possible by the patronage of listeners like you. If you support us through patreon.com slash douglaswolk, you'll get access to our private book club and discussion board for Marvel Nerds, the 616 Society. You can find out more about this podcast on our website, voiceoflotveria.com, and follow us on Twitter. This is Douglas Wolk for the VOL. Zero, zero, five. This is the Voice of Latveria. Zero, zero, five. Tomorrow, a special report on recent advances in Doombot technology and the potential applications of the new KV-3000 chip. This concludes our broadcast day. May Doom's terrifying face inspire you to devotedly implement his policies until you die.